glad we could be here together this morning to be able to worship God. And I'm so thankful that uh, we have uh, those of our number who uh, may be visiting with us. And we want you to know that uh, you are very welcome here. And we're glad that you've come and chosen to worship with us today. I want to tell you a story this morning as we begin. The story is about a collection of barnyard animals. One day they were all gathered together and they were all reflecting on how thankful they were for the farmer because of how well he cared for them. They were thinking about the different ways in which they could express their appreciation and so they decided that they were going to make him breakfast. And so the cow said, well, you know what, I'll give him a glass of milk for breakfast. And the chicken said, yes, and I'll give him some eggs. And then there was an awkward silence. And after a couple of moments, the cow looked at the pig and said, um, do you think you can give him some bacon? And the pig said, hey guys, now this isn't fair. You guys are all making a slight donation. You're asking me to make a lifetime commitment here. Our Lord is not looking for slight donations. Our Lord is looking for lifetime commitments. Commitment is a beautiful thing, and it's a powerful thing. You think about the beauty and the power of a commitment, when I think of that, one of the images that comes to my mind is thinking of maybe a faithful married couple who celebrates a 50th or 60th wedding anniversary. And we celebrate that together with them, and you can see the years of commitment and love and how that has affected both them and their children and grandchildren and so many people around them. Commitment is wonderful, and commitment is powerful, and commitment is full of rewards, but it is also full of challenges. That's what Timothy, or Paul rather, is trying to get across to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 12. Paul tells Timothy, I don't want you to be ashamed, verse number 8, the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, but I want you to share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. And key in on the idea there that Paul mentions sufferings for the gospel because, as we well know, Paul did suffer for the cause of the gospel. And even at the time of this writing, he was, uh, he was in Roman uh, custody awaiting his, uh, awaiting his end and, of course, ultimately perhaps his life. And yet, in spite of all of this suffering and all of this difficulty, Paul is, is telling Timothy, listen, I don't want you to be afraid, I don't want you to be timid, but rather, I want you to be bold, and I want you to be confident. Don't be ashamed to suffer. Don't be ashamed of me as one who is suffering. And then he goes on in verse 12, and in this very beautiful passage, he tells Timothy exactly why he shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel or suffering. He gives us an explanation as to why, in spite of his circumstances, Paul could feel joy and could feel confidence. And that's because of commitment. He says in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Here's why. For I know whom or in whom I have believed, or really the idea is trusted. I know him in whom I have believed or trusted, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him against or until that day. That passage is absolutely bleeding, overflowing 
with the language of commitment, and it describes for us some of the ingredients that are required in order to make that same kind of commitment. Let's talk about them this morning. First of all, we need to recognize that commitment begins with knowledge. Commitment begins with knowledge. Paul said, I know whom I have believed, or again, the idea is, I know him in whom I have trusted. There are a lot of people in our world that would suggest that it is not possible for us to know God. Maybe they would say he is unknowable, or maybe they would say he just doesn't exist. It's also true, unfortunately, that even within the body of Jesus Christ, there are those who would say, I don't know God, or I can't. It's not because they feel as if it's impossible, but because for whatever reason, they feel as if he is beyond their reach. Like there's an emotional disconnect, and there are these problems, and these spiritual stumbling blocks in my life, and I'm, I'm not ever going to be able to overcome them, and so I'm not ever going to be able to truly say to Paul, I know him who I have believed. Paul says none of that is true. We're first introduced to Paul at the end of Acts chapter 7, you may recall. The Bible tells us that after preaching a gospel sermon, Stephen ignited the anger, the furor of a mob of Jewish people, and so they set out to kill him. And the Bible says that they laid their robes down at the feet of one named Saul, and that language really just says he was the one that approved the action. And so they killed Stephen with Saul's approval, and then they began to spread abroad in Acts chapter 8, and Paul went everywhere persecuting the church, the Bible tells us. But then in Acts chapter 9, you remember, as Saul is on his way to Damascus for the purpose of persecuting Christ Jesus, the risen Lord, you remember, appears, and he sees him, and he speaks to him, and he asks him and says, Lord, what will you have me to do? And you remember that it was told him, go on and wait, and there will be one who will come to you, and he'll tell you what you need to do. And we learn later in Acts chapter 9, and in Acts chapter 22, that Ananias came to him, and that Ananias taught him the gospel, and Ananias asked him, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord, Acts 22 and verse 16. You see, the, the one Saul, who would later become known as the Apostle Paul, he said, I know him, but it didn't start out that way. It started out not with him knowing him, but rather with him persecuting him, with him actually hating the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he obeyed the gospel, and throughout his life, the Apostle Paul then would work and would grow and would mature, and in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 10, this is what he would say. He would say that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And in that passage, in that context, you may recall, he is talking about how he looks at all of his accomplishments according to the flesh, and he counts them but lost. He counts them but nothing. He throws them away because his real goal, his real desire is to grow in his knowledge, in his understanding, in his fellowship with God and with his son, Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know him, he's talking about the fact that he knows him in the sense that he's obeyed the gospel, that he has learned his will, that he has applied it to his life. 
He's also talking about the fact that he knows him in the sense that he knows about his grace and he knows about his mercy and he knows about his benevolence. He knows more about him, so he is drawn closer to him. You remember 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Paul talked about the fact that he persecuted, that he made waste of the church of God. And yet God showed mercy and grace unto him. And God enabled him and made him an apostle and made him a preacher of the gospel. The great persecutor now became the great proclaimer. And so he could say with boldness, I know him and I'm, I'm growing closer to him. And in fact, this word that he uses, the word know, it actually indicates not just some kind of a, some kind of a surface knowledge, rather, but it indicates a complete knowledge, a complete knowing. He uses it in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 8 when he talks about the law. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. He uses it in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 15. If I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. And even in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and verse number 14, he uses the word again and he says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Paul says on a number of occasions there is this knowledge that we can have, and this knowledge is not a surface knowledge. It's not even just an identifying and knowing certain amount of facts, although that's part of it. There is a, it's a deeper knowledge. It's, a, it's an, input, yeah, an intimate knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, that same kind of knowledge is something that not only is, it is available to you and to me, but it's something that we also must aspire to. Commitment begins with knowledge. Paul could say, I know him, and that's because he had obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's because he was growing more spiritually every day. That's because he set his mind and he set his goal on knowing Christ better and on growing closer to him on a daily basis so that he could go and be with him forever. That is stop for a moment and divide this more neatly into the two parts. When we talk about knowing God, when we talk about knowing Christ, there is, of course, uh, two different ways. We've been talking about them already, but let's look at them from a different vantage point. There's the intellectual side, the, the knowing facts, or the knowing information. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 16, the Apostle Paul would say, but we know the mind of Christ. I was sh struck a week or so ago, at Brother Taylor's funeral service, whenever Brother Seaver was talking, and he mentioned the fact that after a while, sitting in hours and hours of elders' meetings, you get to know the mind of the man who's sitting across the table from you. And you can know what he's going to say before he says it. You can know what he's thinking before he ever says it. And that's because of the time that's spent together. You get to know the mind of another person. That principle applies, as Brother Seaver pointed out, to God's Word and to our Lord just the same. The more time we spend in the mind of God, the more time we spend in the mind of Jesus Christ, the better we're going to know Him. And listen to what 1 John 2 and verse 3 says. 1 John 2 and verse 3 says, this is how we know Him. He says the way that we know that we know Him, 1 John 2 and verse 3, is that we keep His commandments. That's how we know him. Listen, there are a lot of people in this world who are going to say, listen, if you want to come to know God, all you have to do is accept 
him into your heart and believe in him. There are a lot of people in this world who are going to talk about knowing God, and when they talk about it, it's an emotional kind of thing, and it's an unbiblical kind of thing. What the Bible says is that if we're going to come to know God, the way that we're going to do that is by opening up this book and by reading and, and knowing his mind, and applying it to our lives and obeying it. That's an intellectual and an action kind of knowledge. But then there's also an intimate kind of knowledge. Titus chapter 1 and verse number 16, Paul said, speaking of those who are uh, speaking of those who are false, he says, they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. Why? Because they're abominable and they're disobedient and disqualified in every good work. You see, that is the passage that captures the breakdown between intimate and the intellectual. They profess to know God, he says, but they really don't. In other words, they may know information, they may know facts about God, but they don't really know God. And the reason is because they're disobedient and because they've not dedicated themselves and given their heart into the process of growing closer to Him. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 11, Paul wrote in Verse number 9, he told the Colossian brethren that his prayer for them was that they would grow in, the, in their knowledge of the will of God. And then in verse 10 and 11, one of the things that he lists as a result of growing more in the knowledge of the will of God is growing more in the knowledge of God. He's not contradicting himself. He's talking about two different kinds of knowledge. I like to think of it in terms of a relationship, maybe between husband and wife. The more you know about your spouse, your husband or your wife, the more you become to know, the more you get to know them, the greater your love for them grows. Our relationship grows stronger and more intimate by growing in our knowledge of one another, how we think and what we know and what we like and dislike and what we need and so on and so forth. The principle applies to our God. The more we, be, we get to know our God through his word, the mind, his, his mind, he's revealed to us in scripture, the closer we grow, grow to him. And so therefore we can say, like in Romans 8 and verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who are the call according to his purpose. How did Paul say that with such conviction? How did Paul say in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know him in whom I trusted and continue to trust is the idea. How did he make a statement like that with such conviction? It's because he had decided that he was going to pour every ounce of his mind, every ounce of his heart, every ounce of his soul into the pursuit of the knowledge of God. Yes, there is the intellectual knowledge. There's the knowing facts about God's Word. But then there's the intimate knowledge. There's applying it to our lives so that our relationship with God grows stronger. Now, the question that I, that I have to ask myself is, can I make the same statement? Do I really know God? Am I really close to Him? Am I really investing myself in learning more about Him on a daily basis and applying what He says so that I can be walking, as it were, in lockstep with Him. After all, two can't walk together unless they're agreed, you remember. Amos chapter 3. Paul says, I know Him whom I believe. Commitment begins with knowledge. We're not going to be committed to God if we don't know Him. But look at the 
know him whom I believe and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. When Paul says, I am persuaded, what he means really is, I am fully convinced. It refers to being absolutely and without question convinced. It is a strongly held conviction, just like what we saw in Romans 8 and verse 28. Just like what we see in Romans 4 and verse 21, where Paul talks about Abraham and how he counted God to be faithful, he was fully convicted and fully persuaded. Now, what is it that Paul is convicted and persuaded about in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12? He's persuaded in the ability of God. I know whom I believe and am persuaded that he is able. You go in your Old Testament and you read in Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6 and you see, you see two, two different circumstances. We have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace and we have Daniel thrown into the den of lions. And both of them will make this statement in each context. They will both say, our God is able. Nebuchadnezzar, our God, is able to save us from this burning, fiery furnace. King, I want you to know that my God is able to save me from this den of lions. My God is able. They were convinced of his ability. Am I convinced of his ability? In Ephesians 3 and verse 20, Paul says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Am I convinced that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think? You know, Paul would have been very familiar with the accounts of Daniel 3 and Daniel chapter 6. Paul would have been very familiar with the fact that the God that he knew is the same God who spoke and the heavens and earth came into existence. It's the same God who delivered the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, who parted the waters of the Red Sea so that they could all walk through on dry ground. He's the same God who fought with and for the children of Israel as they made conquest throughout the land of Canaan. It's the same God who has always kept his promise, the same God who sent his son into the world to die for the sins of humanity. And so Paul said, listen, I may be suffering right now, but I'm not worried about it and I'm not ashamed because I am fully convinced that the God who created the heavens and the earth and who delivered the children of Israel and who delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and who kept his promises and who sent his son to die for the sins of humanity, that's the God I know. And he was powerful enough to do all of those things. He's powerful enough to watch over me and seek my own benefit and good. I think that's a powerful thought. And I think it's a comforting thought. And I think it's one that we ought to contemplate on a fairly regular basis. That we serve a God who's not just an idea. He's not just something that we talk about. He's real and he's alive and he's active. And he has manifested display after display of his absolute power. And Paul says, we can know that he's able. And we can be assured. And we can be fully convicted and persuaded to that ability. But now look at the last part. You can't be committed if you don't know. And commitment involves solid conviction. But now let's look at the commitment. I know whom I believe, and am persuaded, Paul says, that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him until or at least that day. Look at the word keep. 
The word keep means to guard or protect. It's a word in the first century world that would be used, say for example, a person was going to go on a long journey and they took maybe uh, their uh, precious valuables and they entrusted it into the hand of a relative or a friend. They said, I want you to keep these safe until I return home to receive them. It's the same word, it's the same idea. That's the word Paul is using. He says, I know that God is able to keep or to guard or to protect the deposit that I have that I have put in his hands. What deposit has he put in his hands? Well, everything. He's talking about his life. He's talking about his well-being. Remember Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. Paul gave God his life. He also gave his body. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 and following? Paul talks about all the things that he suffered. Shipwrecked, stayed by, and being beaten, and so many other things. Remember Philippians 3, verse 7. I count all these things but loss for the knowledge of the excellency of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffer the loss of all things. He's talking about his accomplishments. He's talking about his livelihood according to the flesh. He says, look, I've placed that in the I've placed that in the hand of God. I think it's interesting to note that there is a reciprocal relationship that Paul identifies in the book of 1st and 2nd Timothy. On the one hand, God has entrusted us. 1st Timothy 6 and verse 20. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. 2nd Timothy 1 and verse number 14. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. 2 Timothy 2 and verse number 2, Paul says, And the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. God has entrusted us with the gospel. God has entrusted us to do his work and to do his bidding in this world. But now we've got to entrust something with God. That's the reciprocal relationship. God gives us the gospel and says, Use it responsibly. Paul says, I've given God my life, and I know he will use it responsibly. Remember that the Lord is not looking. The Lord is not looking for slight contributions. The Lord is looking for lifetime commitments. What does that mean for me? Let me suggest a few things to consider. First and foremost, when we talk about commitment, obviously we have to talk about time. You go to any cemetery and you look at a gravestone, and on every gravestone you're going to see a year, another year, a birth year, and a death year, and then between the two you're going to see a small dash. And you've heard this before, you know what that dash represents. That dash represents time. Stop and think for a moment. If a person lives to be 80 or 90 years old, and all of the good and all the things that they can accomplish in their life, all the things that they can do with time, and that time, when their life is over, will simply be represented by a small dash of rainwater. God gives us time. What are we doing with it? What about our family? Someone has said that our children are ours for a while so that they can be his for eternity. I think that's a sobering thought. It's very true, I think, that God entrusts the lives of our children and our grandchildren within our hands. That God entrusts within our hands the uh, obligation, the responsibility of preparing the next generation, the next generation, the generation after that in perpetuity to be the people that, that God would happen to be. And so as I think about my children and as we think about our children and our grandchildren, 
We have to think about how are we preparing them to be committed to God. I'm committed to God. I've given him my life. But what about my family? How am I using my family in his service, preparing them in his service? When we talk about commitment, certainly we talk about the heart. I think about the song, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live. We sing that song often. How often do we contemplate its application? When we surrender all to Jesus, that means our time. That means our family. That means all of our desires. That means all of our goals and all of our plans and all of our actions is to be committed to his hand and to his trust. We hear a lot we hear a lot these days about activism, political activism. There are all kinds of activist groups doing this or that. They all have a goal. They all have a desire. They're, they're acting in order to fulfill or meet that goal. Think about service in terms of God and activism. How are we acting? What are we doing on behalf of God? What are we doing in order to meet his goals in this world in which we live? Godly activism is far greater than political activism or any other kind of activism for that matter. I know who I believe and am persuaded he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. Commitment involves knowledge. You have to know God. There's an intellectual part, there's an intimate part. Commitment involves a strong persuasion or a, or a conviction. We have to really believe in the one who we're committed. But then commitment means commitment. It means giving all, not just a slight donation. God is fully committed to us, you know, and that's seen in the fact that He's given us everything that we need. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 3, that God has given us all things that pertain to the life of Godliness. There isn't anything that we need in this world that God hasn't given us spiritually. And guess what? He even promises in Matthew 6 and verse 33 to provide us the things not necessarily that we want, but the things that we need physically. We have a God who cares, a God who knows, a God who provides, a God who is committed to the well-being of His people. Now we have to be committed I want to make a point just now in relation to commitment. And I want to make uh, I want to ask you to listen very carefully. I'm going to try to choose my words very carefully here because I want to say this just right. And I hope that I do, and I hope that you all will take it in the spirit in which it's intended. I understand and I realize that the times in which we're living are very difficult and frightening. That the COVID-19 virus is a very serious matter. And I understand also that, that uh, it, is, it is needful and it is necessary sometimes for us to maybe stay home and take various precautions and things that are necessary in order to protect ourselves and our family members from this because it's a serious thing. And I'm not speaking against that in any way whatsoever. But I want to make this point, and I want you to hear it, I want you to hear it clearly. This virus can also be very dangerous to our spiritual health if we're not careful. I want you to realize, and I know that we all realize this, but we need to realize that it is, it is a challenging, it is spiritually challenging, it is spiritually really unhealthy to not be able to assemble with our brethren to worship and to be uplifted and to be encouraged. It is spiritually unhealthy for us to neglect our study of God's Word and, 
and exercise, if you will, the spiritual disciplines. So again, let me say, I understand the necessity of being very careful and taking whatever precautions that we all feel we need to take in order to protect ourselves from this virus. I'm not going to say a word against that whatsoever. If a person feels like it's necessary for them to shelter in place and do whatever means they need, they feel that they need to do, then that's fine. I simply just want to issue a warning. I want us to be thinking about this. Make sure that we realize that the devil can use something like this to affect us spiritually just as well as he can use it to affect us physically. And so we've got to be careful. We've got to be very careful. And we've got to be mindful of the commitment that we've made to our Lord and keep that commitment even in a time that's very difficult like this one. Now we're going to offer the Lord's invitation this morning. It may be that there's someone here who has a desire to respond. Maybe, maybe to become a Christian, to commit themselves to the service of the gospel, maybe for the first time. We want you to know that we stand ready and willing to help you and do it. The Bible says that that God sent His Son into the world to die on behalf of every person. That if we believe in Him, John 8, 24, and we're willing to repent of our sins, Luke 13, 3, and confess our faith, Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2 and 38, but moral as to the church. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how you live, it doesn't, none of those things matter. What matters is that every person is a soul, and every soul God loves every soul, and the Lord died for every soul, and the Lord wants to save every soul. So if you have need to become a Christian, then we encourage you to, we encourage you to let that be known this morning. But it may be this morning that you are a Christian, and as you think about commitment, total commitment, not slight donations, but total and complete commitment, maybe you're thinking, you know, I haven't been as committed to the Lord as I should be. Can we pray for you? Can we encourage you in some way? If you have need, then please come forward and let me know while we stand and sing.